Good morning, Christchurch. Can you imagine total darkness? Can you imagine longing for the light? Can you imagine if you didn't know that there was such a thing as the light and you were in darkness? And then all of a sudden, the light shone? Good morning. It's great to be together with you again. I do so miss our gathering and wish that we could do that, but I'm grateful that we are able to continue worshiping. We are able to continue uh, opening the Word of God, uh, applying it to our hearts and lives, all of those things. We do live in dark times, dark in different ways, uh, certainly dark with regards to the pandemic, dark with regards to uh, the knowledge of God in the land and worshiping him, Uh, times that are not unlike Elijah. And he's the one that I want to turn to over the next several weeks as we dive into our scriptures and and study these things. The life of Elijah is very central to the Old Testament, to the nation of Israel. He, along with Elisha, they are the two major deed prophets. Um, And then, of course, Elijah carries on into the New Testament a fair bit. We meet him at the Mount Transfiguration. We read about him in James chapter 5, Romans chapter 11. We meet him in Luke chapter 1. So he's in a number of different places in the New Testament. The other thing uh, that is interesting about Elijah is that there are certain parallels between his time and our time. Now, we have to be careful how we do that, and I want to just say a couple of things as we get started here, actually before we get started. One, it's, it's not fair to say that the nation of America uh, is the same as the nation of Israel. We can't make those kind of... Um, those kind of straight-line applications. So, for instance, uh, when God calls the nation of Israel to humble themselves and repent, uh, that's not a call to America, per se, as a nation in the same way that it was uh, to the people of Israel. Uh, But rather, God is actually calling to his church. The church has replaced the nation of Israel, and God is calling to his people from any nation. It's one of the things we're actually going to see in the stories of Elisha. The second thing is just the topic of judgment. You know, prophets oftentimes will uh, predict and then judgment will follow. We'll see that next week and this week as Elijah comes and declares that the land is going to have a famine and the famine comes into the land and that is a direct result of the Lord's work and prophetic judgment, all of those things. I've heard it said that the coronavirus is God's judgment on America or God's judgment on the world. We have to be careful with that. Jesus gives us some instruction in Luke chapter 13 where there's a tower of Siloam that falls on some Israelites. And there were some there that wanted to say this was the judgment of God on the Israelites. But Jesus says, not so fast, because those people aren't any more wicked than any other people. So how can you say God is judging them, he's not judging others? 
He says, you don't have to interpret it that way, but you do use it as an occasion to examine your own hearts. So rather than saying, this is God's judgment on wicked people, we examine our own hearts and we say, is God calling us to repentance? Is this that type of occasion? And if that's what we want to say about the coronavirus, uh, about the times that we're living in right now, the the economic destability, all of these different things. If we want to say that this is an occasion for us to examine our own lives, this is an occasion for people outside of the church to examine their lives. I'm completely comfortable with that. We can certainly say that. With that in mind, perhaps, we we turn to the nation of Israel uh, during the time of Elijah. I want to read to you beginning in chapter 16. This is a little bit before Elijah bursts on the scene. Uh, And then I want to read verse 1 of chapter 17 as well. But this is the chronicle of the kings of Israel. We have the two kingdoms now. After Solomon, they were split. You had the kingdom of Israel, which is the ten tribes, the northern tribes, and then Judah, which are the two southern tribes. Uh, This is Israel. And then uh, Ahab is is the king. And you're going to hear about that here. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, so those are the southern tribes. Asa reigned for a long time. Israel's uh, monarchy was a little bit more up and down, as I'm explain to you in a minute, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria for 22 years. That's significant, and we'll come back to that. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger uh, all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Seguv, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by Joshua, the son of Nun. And it's in this context that we read chapter 17, verse 1, Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishba in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand and apply these words to our hearts and to our lives. And may we grow more in love with you. May we see your mercy. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to point out to you uh, three things, just a little bit by way of introduction as we dive into this series. We're going to 
revisit some great stories, stories that I'm sure many of you know from your time as children growing up, the stories of Elijah kind of captivate us as we walk through the Old Testament. But we need to understand the context in which he comes. Uh, The context in which he comes is one of great wickedness, but it's not necessarily apparent wickedness. And so I want to start with the deception of stability. As you study the, the kings of Uh, Israel, particularly the northern kingdom, you see all of this instability. You have kings like Nadab and Elah who each reigned for two years and they were overthrown then. You had Zimri who, who reigned for seven days until he was overthrown by Omri. And you have three kings who who reigned a little bit longer. You have Basha, uh, who reigned for about 20 years. And then you have Omri and Ahab, who come after a lot of instability. And they reign for 12 years and 22 years, respectively. And it's sort of a peaceful transition from Omri to Ahab. So you have 34 years of political stability. And that was a big deal. It was a big deal in Israel just because of what I've mentioned, all of the, uh, all of the instability that they had. Uh, but we recognize that in, in our own times. To have political stability is something that we long for. Uh, we recognize what political instability, how that works with us in terms of our angst and anxiety, all of those things. But not only did they have political instability, but it was also a time of security and prosperity. So security, they're making alliances with other nations. Those are good. Uh, Alliances helped you in terms of military and protection. This was a problem that Solomon had. He made alliances with Egypt. Uh, He was hoping and trusting in the Egyptian chariots rather than trusting in Yahweh. Uh, Here we see that Ahab makes alliances with Phoenicia. That's where the Sidonians are. Tyre and Sidon are the two major uh, cities in Phoenicia. And this was a nation immediately to their north. Uh, They would not attack them, so there was security that way. But there was also tremendous prosperity because uh, Tyre and Sidon, Phoenicia, they controlled the shipping lanes. They had so many ports and they were going out. And so this alliance that he makes through marrying the princess, Jezebel, uh, this alliance benefited the country so much. Uh, Prosperity, political security. Uh, They were also, this is part of the reason in verse 34, why Ahab went ahead and rebuilt Jericho. Now, Jericho, you remember, was the first city that the Israelites conquered when they came into the Promised Land. Uh, And that's significant because it was a strategic place. It was on the border of their land. And if you wanted to come into your land, you had to go through Jericho. Jericho was a fortified city. And Ahab thought, I want to have an outpost there. I want to make this a strong city again because then we'll be more secure. Well, the problem was that God, through Joshua, had said never again to rebuild Jericho. 
Uh, part of it is we don't trust in fortified cities. We trust in Yahweh that he will protect us. But Ahab wasn't thinking these ways. And so here you have all of this stability. You have political stability, you have economic prosperity, you have military security, all of these things. But that doesn't mean that it was a good time because underlying that, you have this declaration of trouble. Certainly, Elijah comes to bring that into Ahab's world, but we certainly have hints of it here in uh, chapter 16. Not even hints of it. We just have straight-out statements that Ahab was doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 30, more than all who were before them. Verse 31 says, if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the first king of the northern tribes, who set up idol worship in Bethel and Dan uh, so that the people didn't have to go to Jerusalem. Now, they were supposed to worship Yahweh through those idols, uh, but Ahab even takes it a step farther. He doesn't just introduce idol worship. He doesn't just walk in the sins of his father Jeroboam, but he sets up idol worship to Baal, the god of the Phoenicians. So he has nothing to do with Yahweh. He pushes him completely out of the picture and he brings in these Sidonian gods, these Phoenician gods, into Samaria, the city incidentally that Omri, his father, had bought, built, set up, sign of the prosperous times, makes it the capital, and he brings these false gods there to worship. And one of the things that we realize here through this, both of these points, the deception of stability and the declaration of trouble, is that oftentimes the things that we run after with our hearts, prosperity, stability, security, these are things that are uh, have a different starting point than Yahweh, the worship of him, resting in him. This is what the nation of Israel was called to. They were called to trust Yahweh, but they found themselves trusting other things. You remember what I said about coronavirus and judgment and uh, not necessarily saying that the coronavirus was an occasion or was a judgment on or is a judgment on the land of America or the world. But it is an occasion for us to ask questions like the Israelites were forced to ask here. Were, were they trusting in the right things? Are we trusting in the right things? It's interesting. There's an honesty to idol worship in the Old Testament or even uh, into uh, A.D. times with the Greeks and the Romans. They had their pantheon and they had a variety of gods. They had gods of, uh, of the rain and that seems to be this Phoenician Baal. Baal is a generic term that means master. Uh, so there are lots of different Baals. There's the Baal of the rain. There's the Baal of uh, human fertility. There's the Baal of the seas. There's the, all kinds of different Baals. And, and they would offer sacrifices to these different Baals. We see that continue on through the Greeks and the Romans. There's the God of, of sex and love. There's the God of uh, wine and partying. There's, the, there's the Zeus, the ultimate God. There's the God 
God of the home. There's, we make gods out of, out of anything. And like I said, there's an honesty to these pagan systems, these pantheons that say our hearts want to worship all of these good things. But what the Bible says is that we often end up worshiping the, the gifts rather than the giver. And what Elijah is coming to do is he's coming to say, you are abandoning the God over all. You're abandoning the giver for the gift. Is this really where you want to be? And I think this is one of the questions that we can ask ourselves right now. We have, uh, you know, we've long idolized stability and security and prosperity in America. We've idolized growing up with freedoms to do what we want, when we want. We haven't had to deal with things like pandemics. We've been able to go forward, especially in my lifetime, you know, the time after the, the Second World War. It's just been so undisturbed, relatively undisturbed. And I wonder if part of what we're facing right now isn't challenging us to say, were we after the right things? Were we asking the right questions? One writer puts it this way. Part of our fear right now is that perhaps we've been asking the wrong questions. Perhaps our life has to change. Comforts that we once took for granted, they might turn out to be luxuries, luxuries that we once aspired to. We may have to put those aside for a while. Freedoms that we thought were our birthright will be forced to realize we're simply the blessing of being born at the right time. The freedom, this writer puts it in eschatological terms, to live under your own vine and fig tree was an eschatological hope rather than a political given or part of who we are as Americans. We wrestle with these things as some of these freedoms, some of these givens are sort of taken away from us and we're forced to come back and ask the question, where are we with our Lord and Savior? Are we truly walking after him or are we, in the midst of a stable time, in the midst of a secure time, are we doing evil after the notion that Ahab was doing evil? It's in the midst of this darkness that Elijah comes. One writer puts it this way, especially in terms of the spiritual darkness that had descended on Israel. Every light had been extinguished. Every voice of divine testimony had been hushed. Spiritual death was spread over everything, and it looks as though Satan had indeed obtained mastery of the situation. You could say that uh, about many places in our culture, whether they be here in America whether they be in Peru or in Vietnam or in China or in Europe, wherever it might be, we might feel like every divine light has been extinguished. But God never leaves his people alone. 
And this is one of the great comforts that we get from studying these verses today is we realize that God does not leave his people without a testimony for out of nowhere, literally out of nowhere comes Elijah. Elijah is the Tishbite of Tishba. There's some debate among scholars whether Tishba is actually a place. It means settlers. Even your ESV footnote will note that. Elijah seems to be from across the river in an unspecified place in sort of a wild John the Baptist sort of way coming into the picture. You would have never thought that God had somebody like that who was going to challenge the king, who was going to challenge the uh, establishment. But God always has a way. And that's one of the things that's important for us to remember. Even right now, we feel like maybe God has abandoned us, that he has forgotten our situation. But it's never the case. Remember, Elijah's even going to feel alone a little bit later on in chapter 19, but God reminds him in that still small voice, I always have a witness. I always have a testimony. My plan will continue forth. So that's one thing to remember. But the second thing that I want you to see here as we see this debut, and it's a startling debut of deliverance. And notice I say deliverance, not deliverer, Elijah appears on the scene, but he is not the one that is going to deliver his people. The people are going to be delivered by returning to Yahweh. Yahweh is their king. Yahweh is the one who loves them, who cares for them, who led them out of slavery and who brought them into this land flowing with milk and honey. And it's when they walk with him that they know peace and joy. And it's when they walk away from him that they experience all sorts of hardship and darkness and sadness and all of these different things. And Elijah is calling the people back to their father, back to the one who loves them. So notice that Elijah comes as one who stands in the presence of the Lord. I love verse 1 here. As the Lord God of Israel lives, he wants to demonstrate that God, the God of Israel, is the living God. Now, part of this actually goes back to the Baal of Tyre and Sidon, the Baal of Jezebel, because that Baal died uh, for a while every year. That was just part of the ritual of how they understood that God. But Elijah is saying, you serve the, the living God. He's the God of Israel. And he is the God who lives before whom I stand. His identity was so uh, rooted to being in the presence of Yahweh. And we know two things about this. One, we know that it was characterized by knowing the word of God. Deuteronomy 11, 16 and 17 uh, tells us, that God is reminding the people of Israel here that when they come into the land, he says, take care, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit. Elijah knows this word of God. 
And so he's not making something up here. He's coming to speak the word that he has taken in, that he has imbibed, that he has uh, rooted himself in. And we know also that he is a man of prayer. James 5 verse 17 tells us that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. Elijah knew the living God, and he stood in his presence in prayer and in saturation with the word. And this is the invitation for you and I. This is how you live through a pandemic. This is how you walk with the God, the living God, who invites us to walk with him. We, we walk with him by being saturated through the word and by seeking his face through prayer. And then we too will be able to say, thus says the living God before whom I stand. We will be so rooted in that identity. And in that way, we will also be united to Jesus Christ. Because one of the things that we are gonna see with Elijah is that throughout the ministry of, the, of Elijah, he is always prefiguring, he is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as Elijah is a servant who lives before the face of God, so the Lord Jesus Christ is the great servant who came from the very presence of the Lord to stand not before Ahab, but to stand before the prince of darkness. He didn't come to bring testimony to the light. He was the light that came into the world. And he brought that light into my life, into your life, by descending into the ultimate darkness and defeating it. This is what we celebrated in Good Friday. This is what we celebrate with Easter, the emptying of the tomb, the opening of it is the light that has come into the world. Lord Jesus, the great Elijah, who has come to defeat the prince of darkness and who has come to invite us to live in the light. Brothers and sisters, what an invitation this is. Throughout the course of the scriptures, throughout the course of the Old Testament, we don't see an angry God. We don't see one who says, you better walk this way or else. What we see is the father of the New Testament, the one who Jesus knew intimately, the father who runs after the prodigal son and said, why? Why have you done this? Why have you gone away from me? Search of all of these other things. They hold no joy. Come back. Let me put the ring on your finger. Let me clothe you again. May you know that you belong to me as a daughter, that you belong to me as a son. You have all of my affection. You have all the rights of inheritance. This is what Elijah is saying to the people of Israel. Come back. Come back and know the sweet, sweet love of the Lord. May it be so for us. May we spend some time 
during these days of isolation, staying home, may we find ourselves rooted in the rich word of God. May we find ourselves seeking his face in prayer. And may we discover the servant who came from the presence of the Lord in order that we might live in the light. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We ask that you would meet us in our hearts, that you would encourage us, that you would never leave us alone, and that you continue to invite us uh, through your word, through your prophets, through the great prophet, even Jesus Christ, to find our identity in you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a blessed week. May the Lord bless us and keep us, and make his face to shine upon us, and be gracious to us.